Who wants to be like Jeremiah? Nobody. Powerful prophetic ministry. He has a rough time of it, does Jeremiah. But, um, but sometimes the word of the Lord is hard, as we found a couple of weeks ago when we were leaving. And um, actually today is a little bit challenging as well. Because uh, Jesus is obviously teaching about um, the importance of humility. So I, I entitled this, Humble Yourselves First. You will be humbled. Better to do it yourself than the Lord do it. But he will if you don't. Anyway, I want to explore this. Um, because it's an important virtue in the kingdom of God. Humility. Ever have to deal with somebody who's not really displaying humility? There's a bit of arrogance, narcissistic behavior. We had a conversation with our daughter whilst we were away, and uh, she, she's like the um, office manager, part CFO, financial officer for a small building company, and they have to deal with a customer who's just kicking up a fuss about anything and everything. Um, <coughs> a lot of self-righteous behavior in his, in his life, it seems, Anyway, he wanted this kitchen work service they'd done totally replaced. They had to buy a block of um, material that cost about $10,000 to just fix this thing, which really wasn't that bad. And then um, he submitted an expense claim for his accommodation whilst he'd been out of his house, whilst they fixed that, for $20,000. And uh, just unbelievable. And, and as they sort of challenged that, got the kickback, and, uh, you know, I'm an important person. I deserve to live in a place commensurate with this amount. <laughs> Don't you just love that? And um, it just struck me, you know, how wrapped up with ourselves we can become and our own self-importance without consideration for anyone or anything else and the impact we have. But one thing's for sure, we're not very nice people to be around when we're like that. Not only does God resist the proud... <laughs> But we tend to resist people like that as well. And yet, we can be prone to that if we're not careful. Because our ego wants to go there very often. And, um, you know, I think even these words of uh, Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns broken that cannot hold water. Why would we forsake the creator, the giver of all good things, the giver of life? But we do. And we go it alone. We do our own thing. And we create a life for ourselves we think that will carry us through. And it cannot hold water. We are all capable of that, if we are honest. Humility is not really a virtue that is affirmed in our culture much. Let's be honest. Is that fair? Certainly where I've spent the last 20 years in the United States of America, uh, you don't see a lot of it in terms of in the public arena. On the contrary, uh, you see quite a lot of the opposite. But for Jesus, humility was of deep and great significance. Not just in what he said, but supremely how he lived. Here we have God Almighty humbling himself, taking the nature of a servant, submitting himself to crucifixion. Therefore, God exalted him. And humility is not just a, a nice idea for a few, for some of the time. It's actually a part of the way. 
Remember, we're, we're reflecting on this way of Christ because we're called to follow Christ. We're not called to go to church. We're called to follow Christ. We're to become like him, in other words, to live like he lived, to take on board his teaching and to allow that to increasingly transform who we are and how we live. Now, Jesus uses a meal um, for this teaching moment. I love that, don't you? Don't you love the fact that Jesus hung out with people and uh, ate with them? Ordinary, normal things of life. And we will find often, in the ordinary, normal things of life, they become teachable moments. Interestingly, he's at the, he's at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. Weren't, weren't they his enemies? The Pharisees. Didn't he have, give the Pharisees quite a hard time in his humility? Well, it wasn't all. You see, Jesus was comfortable with, with anyone's presence. Whether it was some of the, the lowest as culture would recognize them, or some of those supposedly very important people. Um, you see, God loves all, and God meets all. And he meets them in the place that they are at, as he does with us. In fact, previously, the Pharisees, as we read just in the last chapter of Luke, had uh, been warning Jesus about some danger. They were protecting him. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. We don't always think of the Pharisees as like that. They had concern for Jesus and his welfare and his well-being. They wanted to protect him. This was not the first time Jesus had dined at the house of a Pharisee. But as he's dining here, he notices something. Now, it's important to realize in the culture of the day, and particularly at a meal like this, which was a, a significant celebration. Uh, but it was a time to demonstrate who's who, who's important, and what's really significant. And very often it was, you know, the tables would be arranged very often in a kind of a U-shape, and the closer you are to the host, the more important you are and the more significant. That's why Jesus happens to notice that people are trying to sit up front as close as they can get. Because the closest you are, the more important you are in the eyes of everybody else there, in the culture of the day. And, and status and honor were very significant to people. It's the way they defined themselves. It was part of the culture. And everyone essentially was trying to figure out, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? Who do I belong with? How important are they? And what do other people think about me? You ever wrestle with that stuff? Come on, be honest. We can do if we allow ourselves to. And, and so our status in the eyes of other people within the culture of the day was hugely significant as to the kind of people who would hang out with you, even as to the kind of people you might be able to marry. And so people were trying to create something for themselves to be accepted and welcomed. You might say they were digging their own systems, as we can do ourselves. And that was something that you really had to fight for in the day. You had to struggle for and compete with others in order to be seen, in order to be the best, in order to be the most valuable. Do we see that today? Whether it's the realm of sport, politics, entertainment, you see, we're surrounded by the same, essentially, um, values in people. Striving to be good enough and seen to be something 
in other people's eyes. And it's, an, it's, a, it's a tiring place to live because nobody, nobody lasts in that place. We come and go. We may have our five minutes of uh, fame, but it doesn't last. And it's a shaky foundation on which to build our lives. And Jesus speaks into this realm because he, he has care and concern for people. He's not wanting to just put them down. He's wanting to actually build them up and to realize there's something better. That's what he would want to say to us too if we find ourselves trying to prove ourselves or gain favor in other people's eyes. And he somehow undercuts the importance of this status thing. He actually talks about it as something that is not worked for, competed for, but actually given. It's a gift. We are the beneficiaries of that. It's not a gained or accrued to you because of your own efforts. You made the grade. Good job. Well done. No. So the key sentence in all of this in Jesus' teaching is verse 11 where Jesus says, all those who exalt themselves, and that's what we're talking about, will be humbled. It's a promise. And so is this. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility is a supreme virtue in God's economy and his kingdom. And the more that you sow yourself to humility, the more your life will know the blessings of that, I think is what Jesus is saying here. You see, it's God who determines our honor and status and worth. He does that. And he wants you to rest in that reality as his gift to us. Now, Jesus' teaching here is not new. He's not coming up with some new ideas and some newfangled way of figuring out this religious thing. You see, Jesus was a Jew, and he is rooted in the revelation that God has given to the people of Israel, those very people that Jeremiah is speaking to when he talks about how they've not listened and rejected God's ways. But nevertheless, God has always been about this. And we see this in the evolution of Israel and the people of God and the revelation that God brings to him. So in in, in Proverbs, it, it seems that almost Jesus is quoting Solomon in the writing of Proverbs, he, where, where we read, Do not exalt yourself in the king's presence. Do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to say to you, Come up here, than for him to humiliate you before his nobles. It's almost word for word, isn't it? Because humans haven't changed that much. And neither has God in his dealings with us and his desire for us. From the beginning of creation to the consummation, God is consistent. God of the Old Testament is not the big, bad, mean God who's just out to punish and judge. No, not at all. He's the same God revealed in Jesus Christ. We are to find security in that, I think. And God's heart is always to restore his people from our brokenness from our wayward living, from our prideful self-reliance and ego-driven lifestyles. Sorry, I'm only talking about myself. I wouldn't, wouldn't include any of you in that place, but I know that's been true for me. But God's desire is to restore us from that place to something much richer and deeper for which we've been destined and called. You see, you have a destiny, an extraordinary destiny in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as well as seeing this as part of the ancient heritage of the people of Israel, we also see it repeated elsewhere in the New Testament. 
James. James says pretty much the same thing. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Do you want the favor of God in your life? Does anybody want the favor of God in their lives? Well, he will give it to the degree that you do humble yourself before him. Is there any other way? Peter says this, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Not necessarily immediately. You see, sometimes part of the humbling and the breaking is suffering. And that's what Peter's speaking into, particularly in that first letter. But to realize that in due time, God will lift you up. He has not forgotten you. And if you're struggling with this humility thing because life just, you know, the other people seem to be just benefiting, wait. God is faithful. He's not forgotten you. And he's not forgotten his promises. The psalmist, you save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty, proud, self-sufficient, self-reliant. So, we see this pattern consistently through the scriptures. And those who are humble are those who have come to a place of brokenness. In all that we've tried to do for ourselves and realizing that I can't do this, I can't make it happen, I need help. I need God. Now, in the second part of our reading, God also not only speaks to the the guests at the table who are itching for the better places to show off how important they are, he speaks to the host as well. Nobody escapes his view and uh, the things that he noticed. And he talks to him about the importance of generosity and giving. You see, again, part of the culture of the day was that, hey, if I give you something, if I invite you for dinner... You are in my debt. You owe me a nice rump steak or or the equivalent. But I'm expecting something to come back. I've given you something. Now you're under a debt to me. But Jesus says, no, it's not to be like that. Now he's going to use language which really Paul picks up on when he speaks about the nature of grace. You see, grace is an unmerited favor. It's just given. (laughs) It's just given freely, even to those who reject it. That's the nature of God's generosity. And God's generosity is so radically different from ours. So he says to the host, he says, you know, next time you have one of these slap-up dinner parties, don't invite your friends, your family, those who are wealthy so that they can repay you, tit for tat. No. Invite the poor, the main, the crippled. They can't repay you the blind, those in a sense who we might deem to be of no worth because they've got nothing to give. But they do in God's economy. In fact, they have more, more very often than we imagine. That's the extraordinary message of the gospel. And he says, let these kind of people be the beneficiaries of your generosity. In fact, this is the very reason God has blessed you to the extent that you can do that so that you can give it away. Because it's not yours. You are a steward. This is how you buy treasure in heaven. Remember we talked about that a few weeks back. If you want to invest in the future, give it away in the present to those who have nothing. That's why I love that I kind of came back and heard that we gave away 250 hot dogs to people who have very little. We seek to go and serve people that maybe some in society have no time for, Because we know God does. In fact, very often, very specially on God's heart. 
because he knows they're very often alone and isolated. Now, Jesus uses the form of the banquet, the banquet table. That's an important message we've seen uh, in this story, not only in the fact that he, he ate with people, um, but God meets us in the ordinary. He meets us around the meal table. Uh, we'll celebrate communion uh, later where we again encounter the Lord. We remember what he's done and we share in his life. And uh, in doing this, Jesus, in sitting at the table and speaking to those there, he's, he's kind of reorienting uh, a community around him and his way. This is the work of the kingdom. This is the work I believe we're called to participate in as we open our tables. In fact, as we were praying, Diana had a... Well, she was talking about, in her time away, they kind of had a family picnic. I hope you don't mind my sharing this, Diana. She had this picture of the, the family picnic table that as they basically had a meal and pulled away, it sort of collapsed. And, um, and it was just the end of itself. Well, the tendency might be, let's just throw it away and get a new one. But no, she said, I, th- I love this, she said, we rebuilt that table. We strengthened it. We put new joints in it. We, we, we strengthened the seating. And it was almost as good as new. In fact, maybe even better because it was part of the story of our family. I'm kind of reading into that. And, and that's what I'm saying God is saying to us, that he's rebuilding something that's, that's new because he's, he makes all things new. But it's a continuation of our story. We bring our brokenness into that. You know, we're the wounded healers. Jesus is the one who still bears the marks of his crucifixion in heaven. And, and we do, as we gather in our communities, not as those who prove themselves, therefore, deserve the best seat. But no, we're beneficiaries of grace. We're beneficiaries of God's mercy and love. He's showered that upon us. And he's empowered us to love one another. Even those people who get on our wick. No, those other people, not you people. Those other people. No, you see, that's the challenge of the Christian community, that all are welcomed. We don't pick and choose because we kind of like those people. We get on with those. No, the kingdom is one and all. And especially the most broken. And so we recreate the picnic table. We recreate this table of the kingdom, of the presence of God that we've sung about, and the life of God that's shared among us through the Spirit who indwells us both personally and corporately. And people are drawn to that because people yearn for this, as we do. And I love the fact that Jesus is reshaping the nation and the nations from a meal table. And I believe that's what he's inviting us to participate in. So much happens around food in Jesus' ministry. Thanks be to God. Does that excite anybody else? It's kind of like food. I've just been back in the mother country and uh, had a good balti. Kind of an Indian dish, which I miss. We haven't got a good balti restaurant in Port Alberni. But, but food is important. Food's part of the story, isn't it? Of life and families and communities. But the important thing about this meal table that we gather around is we're not just remembering something that happened in the past. We're not even just looking forward to something that's going to happen in the future at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Though both of those things are true. But no, it's now. It's it's present day. It's kingdom come now. You see, this was to be transformational now. This was to change our lives now. This was for the healing of the nations now. 
This was for the transformation of your life and your families and your community. Now, that is the kingdom. And that's why I'm encouraging you to pursue these, these centers. You know, gathering around the meal table as an organic expression of the life of the kingdom and welcoming in the stranger. Come and share. Come and have a meal. Come and participate in this life of God. Come and taste and see that God loves you because I love you. And there are no strings attached. Now we've got to get a house in order. We've got to rebuild the picnic table. We've got to get those joints and connections working well. We can't be struggling with one another if we think we can extend that to those who are yet to know. But that's the work God is doing, I believe. Thanks be to God. So what will this take? <coughs> Humility. Primary virtue. We will never do this with bypassing the significance and centrality, I would suggest, of humility. So I've got a few things that I think this involves, and then we'll close. Firstly, admit your need of others. Admit your need of others. The eye cannot say to the hand, and here's Paul talking about the nature of the body, the, the ecclesia, the called out, the church. And uh, we can't say, I don't need that person or that person. And, and he's using body parts to reflect the fact that you know, we all have different gifts and express different aspects of the body. But you can't say, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. No. We need people. We need others. We are created for connection and community. And we do not do well without it. And self-reliant, pride-driven is the very antithesis of humility. I have discovered in my journey. It feels safer to do that self-reliant thing. I'm more in control. But it does not bring life. You know what? The gift of eternal life, how does that come to us? With music and with singing. Well, it is. It's the song of heaven, but it comes to us as we're broken before God and in humility acknowledge that and our deep and desperate need of him. And that's how we grow in him as well. You see, the work of salvation isn't, doesn't end at the point of conversion or coming to Christ and receiving the gift. That's to empower us to truly become like him so that we would love one another. You see, it doesn't end with loving God. John says, love God but hate your brother. You're deceived. The truth isn't in you. Love one another. And that means acknowledge our need of one another. The solo life. The isolated Christian. These, these just are not kingdom terms. They're Western cultural terms, you betcha. But they're not kingdom. And they're not humility, I don't think. Secondly, admission of your wrongdoing. Get over it. You're imperfect and you've hurt people. And you will tomorrow. Or the day after. Or the day after. So why do you judge others for doing that? You see, we are supposed to be so overcome by this message of grace that we just want to envelop others in it. And if we're struggling to do that through unforgiveness, it's probably because we've really not received forgiveness yet. You see, we're beneficiaries of mercy, and so we're meant to be dispensers of mercy. So confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, and be healed, be saved. That's the same meaning of the word. Healing in all its senses physical, emotional, spiritual, comes as we confess. Now, the good old Reformation got rid of that old Catholic thing of confession to the priest. I've got direct access to God. But we lost something. The need to confess to one another because we've hurt one another. 
And we cannot restore those hinges and relationships without good confession and comfort and forgiveness towards one another. That's humility. Get used to apologizing. And if you haven't apologized in a week or two, you're probably due. Thirdly, humility means have a teachable attitude. If you listen to constructive criticism, you will be at home among the wise. If you reject the discipline, you, you only harm yourself. But if you listen to correction, you grow in understanding. Fear of the Lord teaches wisdom. Humility precedes honor. So there we have it, honor. That's the promise. Humility. And humility says, I'm accountable to, to other people. And so I need to hear from. I do not have it all. I do not understand everything. I am not perfect. I haven't got the corner on the market on everything. But we act like we do. We don't want to hear or listen. I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I think. But just the key to good community is that we listen to one another's stories. We meet people where they're at. We learn from them. And we're enriched through it, I would suggest. Now, me in my early life, and sometimes even later life, I think if I acknowledge that I haven't got it all together, or I need other people, or uh, I don't understand stuff, that's a weakness. That, that's a mark against me. But very often we tell our kids, you know, when we're teaching kids, is ask questions. It's not a bad thing to want to know more, <laughs> to realize you don't understand everything. Well, that doesn't go away when we put big boy pants on. It's still a good thing. And to listen well to one another and be teachable. Fourthly, commit yourself to other imperfect people. This is humility. Don't try to protect yourself. Don't try to pick and choose which people you'll be with, which church you'll go to, based upon how comfortable it is to you. If you find that perfect church, as the saying goes, don't join it, you'll mess it up. But you see, we kind of laugh at that, we know that, but yet we still live as if it should be out there. And why are these people upsetting me and hurting me? Well, maybe that's part of God's humbling. That's a deeper work that he's doing in you. Thanks be to God. Bring it on. No. We've got to go back to that place and remember. We sit around the table. We're forgiven sinners. We're all here by grace. We don't have to prove anything. And when we love our enemies, it's like burning coals upon their head, as Paul quotes again the Old Testament. Because that's the nature of a, a humble, kingdom-oriented community. And then finally, acknowledge that the imperfections of others have impacted you. You're a, you are somewhat a product of your story. And whether it's your parents as you were growing up or others in your lives, their imperfections have established pain, and faulty thinking in your life. But God wants to heal and change. And he'll do it in the context of a community, I believe. Where you experience something alternate. Something different. Something of the spirit of life and of love. Because our souls are broken. All of us. But God wants to heal and restore and make new. It's kind of messy work. But it's scary work if it's in a, in, a, in a community where we've got to hit the bar before we're eligible. And the bar is real low. Just ask. Just ask. I believe that's the gospel. And that's meant to be the nature of the church and the kingdom. And we experience that as we 
be helpful and give help to one another in our fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one another. Because he's in that. He does, he can't, you can't separate God from people. Because he, he doesn't. He chooses all. So this is our true gift, I think, for us to grow in humility, to fellowship one another. What do we have in common? And what empowers us to risk this kind of thing is this gift that has been given. This is why, if we're struggling, it's probably because we need to receive more of that understanding and reality of salvation, of forgiveness, of the gospel. That we are children of God. That we do belong fully, fully loved. We're the beloved. There is no shame. We don't have to fight or compete like people out there do. We do not have to prove ourselves to be qualified. But rather, we have a new life to live in the Spirit. And it's the sheer goodness of God that he chooses to demonstrate his goodness through you and I. That's his method. That's his way. That's the risk he's taking. Why would we not risk also? And Jesus is the head, and he's the one who's humbled himself more than we'll ever have to, and taken on himself our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us also, such that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. The gift that has been given. We've arrived. We're whole. So let's live as if it's true. Amen.